please take a seat. Y'all so excited. I guess there's still some holiday spirit left after all. Yay. Who else is totally exhausted from that Christmas season? This guy. Okay, anyway. Um, welcome, everyone. My name is Kyle Burke. I am the youth pastor here, and it is my privilege to preach on the last Sunday of 2019 and into 2020. So um, kind, of, kind of intimidating, honestly. I've never preached this kind of sermon at this juncture in time. So pray for me. Um, and before we jump in, will you actually pray with me? So let me pray right now. Um, <laughs> Father, we thank you so much for um, a season where we get to literally, collectively, as a people in America, sing songs about Jesus and think about Jesus even if sometimes it gets lost in the Christmas presents and all of the other rush, Lord, we just thank you that you planted seeds in the hearts of people that heard your music, that heard your story. And we pray, Lord, that the joy and hope that we have felt during that season is not worn out, that we're not going into 2020, into January, um, already moving past what you have done through Jesus Christ by becoming incarnate for us. I pray that we actually carry that joy and hope forward as people have the kind of Christmas crash afterward. Um, so, Lord, please, uh, please be present with me today. Help me get out of the way and help you speak through me. In your son's name, amen. All right. So, 2020 is the year of vision slogans. Let's be honest. 2020 vision because of 2020. I, I hate that stuff because I have glasses, so I don't have 2020 vision. Uh, my brother has like 2040 vision or something stupid like that. So, his year will come in 20 years. Um, but yeah, 2020 is the, is the year where I think a lot of businesses and churches are going to embrace this idea that it's a year of promise, a year of vision, a year of dynamic change. There's going to be a lot of articles written about how to be the best you in 2020. Um, people are going to get their CrossFit subscriptions locked in, their juice cleanses. Um, some people may try goat yoga for the first time. There's yoga where goats jump on you. Uh, it's a real thing. Look it, on, look it up. Um, yeah, so it's going to be a year where there's a lot of promise ahead. And it's also a year that's going to be really hard for a lot of us because it's a year of election. Um, it's a year where we're kind of walking into it with a lot of fear. We have a lot of concerns about our environment going around. We have a lot of concerns about the continued school shootings that keep happening and gun control legislation and all of that stuff that kind of brings us out of Christmas time and into the seasonal depression that we all hit in January. So I thought it very important to talk about something that's not talked about too often, and that is the subject of fear as we enter 2020. Because underlying everything that I just talked about is a fear that a lot of us carry with us of the unknown, of the future, of the will of God even. How will I know what to do going into this year? How will I know what to prioritize? And so I thought, let's talk about it. Let's talk about fear. Specifically fear in two categories. Fear of man and fear of God. Fear of man and fear of God. Is that my car? I think that's my wife's car. Oh, no, it's not. Okay, we're good. Um, Fear of man and fear of God. Now, fear of man can be distilled down to fear of people's opinions about you, fear of how people perceive you, 
you can be a people pleaser and have the fear of man in your heart. And the fear of God isn't being afraid of him, like, oh my goodness, he could smite me. I mean, he can. But um, fear of God is about being in right relationship with him. He is God and I am not. He is God and I am not. His ways are above my ways and I try to figure my way out under those ways and with those ways. And so why are we talking about this today? Well, in Samuel, 1 Samuel, there are two kings that have these two fears seated in their core. King Saul and King David. You can probably guess where which fear goes. The fear of man is in the heart of Saul, and the fear of God is in the heart of David. And we're going to be looking at how that underlying premise of fear interacts with their ability to obey the will of God. Their ability to hear God, how it changes their responses to stress. I mean, fear plays a huge role in everyone's lives, and yet they have such a different outcome to their lives and they have the same calling. Did you know, I mean, both men are kings. Both men are kings to be over Israel, and yet their, their stories are so polar opposite. And so I really wanted to kind of unpack what those stories can mean for us as we enter a year of promise and of fear. <laughs> so we'll be mostly in 1 Samuel 15 today, and then we'll be jumping to 1 Samuel 24, which is David. So we're starting with Saul, and we're going to go to David. So if you want to turn with me to 1 Samuel 15, we're about to jump into that text. But before we do that, we have to talk about who is Saul. So, Saul. He is the first king of Israel. Before Saul was king, Israel was governed by these people called judges. Now, they were not in those big black robes and curly wigs that you see in British uh, uh, dramas. No, this is a judge which meant a prophet of God who had authority over the people of God. The judge was somebody who listened to God's voice did God's will over the people of Israel, and they should have responded to that, that judge. But at the end of the day, that judge didn't hold a political seat. He didn't have a palace. She didn't have authority over the average tribes of Israel. They just kind of floated away and then came up and floated away. So Israel got tired of that. They said, this ain't working for us, God. We, 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 we appreciate the effort, but we want a king. We want a king just like everyone else out there. So they're surrounded by a bunch of nations, and they're like, hey, that nation, they have a king. Oh, wait, that nation has a king. That nation, hey, God, can we get one of those kings? And God was like, I can give you a king, but do you want one? Do you know that he takes taxes? Do you know that he takes your your young women for his harems? Do you know he takes your young men for war? I mean, you can. I can give you a king, but he's going to cost you. And the people said, we still want a king. So God said, okay, here's your king, Saul. Tallest man in the land, most handsome man in the land. He was a looker. He uh, had a kingly demeanor about him, and he also was apparently very humble. You're like, dude, this guy is set up for success. Everything is right for him to succeed. And the Spirit of God comes upon Saul, and everyone's waiting to see this amazing reign start. But Saul had something that lived in his heart that was deeply dangerous for any leader to have, and it was called the fear of man. If you read the story, starting in 1 Samuel 9, you should, by the way, it's a drama worthy of Game of Thrones. Like, Game of Thrones is nothing compared to the Bible. I'm just letting you know that right now. Like, the drama in Old Testament scripture, insane, awesome. Saul starts out his entire legacy trying to please everyone, trying to avoid people's displeasure. He's just a train wreck of listening to what people want. In fact, he does this so much that through the whole 
text all the way up to 1 Samuel 15, he keeps making the same mistake over and over and over. And we see this in 1 Samuel 15, that Saul's ability to obey the will of God is corrupted by his fear of man. So 1 Samuel 15, verses 8 through 15, that's where we're going to start. We're starting in the middle of a scene, and I'll paint that scene very briefly after this. So Saul took Agog, which is a funny name, by the way, king of the Amalekites, alive. And all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agog and the best of the sheep and the cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. Then they were, these they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle, so to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. So, right there, we're going to stop. What is happening? Saul was given explicitly simple, detailed instructions. So, that's kind of contradictory. Explicitly detailed instructions that were simple which was, go wipe out this people group completely. Man, woman, child, all the animals, dedicate them as destruction to the Lord because these were the, the historic enemies of Israel. In Exodus, the Amalekites tried to kill Israel before they were even in the land. These are bad guys. They hate the Israelites. They're super prejudiced and racist against them. They're also demon worshipers. They sacrifice babies. They're bad news. And so God says, time's up. It's been a couple hundred years. Um, time for them to end their, their, their debauchery. Saul, go wipe everyone out. Saul does not wipe everyone out. Does he? He saves the king and he saves a bunch of sheep and cattle. Why would he do that? Why would Saul do that? Well, Saul was not raised to be a king. He didn't grow up in a court. He didn't learn how to be a kingly king guy. He just grew up um, in a merchant home doing, we see earlier in Samuel 9, watching his father's donkeys. He's kind of like, helping out with the family business. And so when he has a kingly decision to make, what does Saul do? Does he turn to God and ask God? No, he looks to what everyone else is doing. He looks at what the other kings do. So he said, when other kings conquer a nation, they take treasure and spoils, and they take the enemy king, and they parade them around the cities and say, ha ha, look how great I am. I've defeated our enemies. That's what he does. He takes the king, and he takes the sheep and the cattle because he thinks he's done a good job. He wiped out the historic enemies of Israel. He even builds a monument to himself in verse 12. And he's on his little glory run, running around Israel saying, like, check me out, I'm the king. You guys should totally follow me now. I'm cementing my reign right now. And Samuel walks in like a dad catching his kid doing something he shouldn't do. How many of you have walked in on what your kids are doing and they lie? For instance, this is a scene not too long ago. I hear the water running in my son's bathroom. My son has a master bathroom. I don't know why he does, but he does. <laughs> and um, he had turned both faucets on and he had filled up, the, plugged the sink and he had put sponges in and he was putting water everywhere. So I walk in and I say, Elias, what are you doing? And he said, oh, I'm trying to clean the sink. <laughs> Clearly not what he was trying to do, but he was 
quick enough at two, two years old to be like, oh yeah, no, I was doing something you wanted me to do. We see that right here. Samuel goes, what is all this sheep doing? Why do I hear sheep and cows? And he goes, oh, oh the people, they were totally going to sacrifice them to God. Like the, all of this good stuff, we're going we're to give to God. Yeah, that was what was happening. And Samuel can smell right through that. And so he starts the next section, 16 through 21. Samuel looks at Saul and says, enough. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Saul said, tell me. Oh, by the way, don't ever do that. When you're about to get in big trouble, don't be like, lay it on me. Be like, how can I negate this whole scenario? How can I repent ahead of time? He says, tell me. Samuel says, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission, saying, go and completely destroy the Amalekites, these wicked people. Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? The door is wide open for Saul to repent. Right here. You're right. I shouldn't have done that. But does Saul do that? No. He says, but I did obey the Lord. But I did obey the Lord. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agog, their king. The soldiers took the sheep and the cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God. Wow. Again, I'm telling you, this is great drama. So, what happens? Samuel says, I'm going to lay it on you. You did not do what you were supposed to do. And Saul has the guts to look at Samuel and go, but I did. But I did do it. And then he whines like a kid. But those bad people took the bad things and did the bad thing. So you should be mad at the people that took the animals, not me. I did what God asked. I killed the people. And there's also an underlying kind of feeling of self-righteousness here because wiping out an entire people group isn't fun business. What Saul was doing, he wasn't just waging war against the men. He had to wipe out an entire people group. That was hard work. That was not fun. He, I think he's kind of rubbing it in his face a little bit. I did all this hard work, so I get my king and I get my sheep. What's happening here? Well, Saul originally was seen little in his own eyes. Samuel says, you were once little in your own eyes. It meant he had low self-esteem. He appeared humble. But that low self-esteem didn't drive Saul close to God. In fact, what happened is Saul's self-esteem was so low that he had built us a hedge around himself and pushed everyone else away. He pushed everyone else away, including God, and said, I, I don't trust you. You're a threat to me. You and I have to play this game where I manipulate you or you'll overcome me. This idea is like Saul was on his own and he didn't depend on God. And it's led him to this point. His fear of man has been so so deeply ingrained in him that when God is giving him reprimands, he can't even submit to that. He has to lie. He's lying twice now to Samuel, which is lying to God. And I think something else has happened in Saul's mind. So this is chapter 15. So since chapter 9, six chapters, Saul has been messing up over and over again. And God keeps calling him out. And Saul doesn't hear that reprimand as something like, oh, maybe I should change what I'm doing. He just gets resentful. He gets angry at God. Did you notice this whole section in verses 15 and in verses 20, 
Saul says, the Lord, your God. He points the finger to Samuel. He says, your God, he's your problem to deal with. He's telling me what to do through you. He doesn't talk to me anymore. He doesn't talk to me anymore. So I don't want to talk to him anymore. I don't want to give him what is his anymore. I want what is mine. You see, Saul's root of the man, the root of the man of uh, fear of man is pride. The root of fear of man is pride. Because it's all about control. It's all about image. It's all about making people like you and keeping that favor. And so it comes out, I don't respect God as king. Even though he was given this kingdom by God, Saul didn't win this by going to war against the Israelites and conquering them. God said, hey, here's a king. Saul, you didn't know you were going to be king today, but now you're king. And yet somehow in his brain, he started convincing himself, I, I deserve this. I think Christian leaders can fall into this mentality. And it's the mentality of enough, the word enough. I've given God enough, now I get my cut. I've given God the whole city of the Amalekites and all the other garbage sheep and cows, so I get my cut. Where's my tithe? Where's my honor? Pastors do this often. Um, and we've seen this in the public sphere. I've seen this personally. Their leadership is built on sacrifice enough, and then it starts to be built on ego, or what I want, my private book project, my private ministry. It's what I want. I've done enough. We see this transferred into families. Husbands can do this to wives. Moms can do this to kids. Kids can do this to each other and to their parents. I've loved you enough. I've obeyed you enough. Now I get to do what I want. I used to do that. As a kid, I'd be like, look at my grade sheet. I did enough. Now I'm going to go play video games and not listen to you. And so that's a childish way of living. That's a childish, sad state for a king to be in. It's actually, I, I would say, disgusting to watch if you see this in real life. This powerful person who is supposed to be fulfilling the promises of God, the legacy of God saying, but I want what I want. It's, he's throwing a, a, a hissy fit. And it's all because of his pride. So Samuel tells him, the next hard thing, and it's one of the, I've seen this quoted a lot in different contexts, but it just, it just hurts when you know the context here. So Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel 15, 29. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king of Israel. What about this do you not understand? That, that's my own aside. And then Samuel turns to leave. And Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe and it tore. Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He who is the king of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. Wow. It's clear as day. Saul has lied twice. Samuel lays it out again. Now you've literally lost your kingdom and Saul tries to repent. It's too late. 
It's too late, man. Your heart has been shown. Your cards have been shown. You've been bluffing. You've been controlling. You see, Saul has been relying on his own insight and his manipulation of people before relying on God his whole life. And in his attempt to cement his reign as king, his little parade around Israel was a perfect PR move, by the way. That's a great move to, like, cement your reign in the pagan world. He's doing what kings should do. And in doing that, he loses the very thing he wants, his kingdom, his legacy, his respect. God strips that all away because he didn't get it. That honoring men before God gets you nothing. Gets you nothing. And I love the barb that Samuel throws in there. He says, but God has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. Oh man, just like, just hitting a guy who has low self-esteem and hitting him in the gut. One who's better than you. Wow. We see here that Saul could not obey the will of the Lord. And he could not obey the will of the Lord because he had been tempted his whole life to give in to fear. He could not submit to someone greater than him. And so God stripped him of his privileges, of his kingdom. This is hard for a lot of us to hear. I have lived most of my life afraid of man, afraid of what people think about me. Most of us have. Very few of us have lived this pure life of dedication and glory on honor to God. Let's be honest. So I'm in the same boat as Saul here. But the more, here's the key, the more you forget God in your daily lives, the more likely you will be ruled by fear of losing it all. Saul never gave God what God deserved, which was his heart. And so he lost it all. Every, you should read, seriously, read from verses 9 to, to 15 and see how many chances God gives Saul. He's like, here's another chance. Here's another chance. Here's another chance. Here's another chance. When are you going to repent? Here's your chances. And Saul just kept saying, I'll, one day when I build a temple, I'll, I'll come and give you sacrifices. And I'll, we'll wipe it all clean, you know, but I need to get this done now, God. Your nation is scattered and I have to do all of it myself. And God's like, where, where did this come from? Where is this idea coming from? I'm the one who gave you the kingdom. I'm the one who will keep my people together. Why do you think you have to do it all yourself? And why are you running from me? Because God does not want people who are ruled by fear of men. He wants something that is revealed in 1 Samuel 13. So if you, I mean, if you want to turn, you can turn to 1 Samuel 13, verses 13 through 14. It's a key verse um, in David's life that is delivered to Saul. So just any, any sort of preface to this, is Saul made another dumb mistake, I'll just give you that context. He made another dumb mistake, and Samuel says, you have done a foolish thing. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. So Saul, a man ruled by his own fear and his own pride, is told to his face that God is finding a new king. And the king was defined by one attribute, a man after God's own heart. Now, as a kid, that was freaking confusing. I didn't know what that meant. What does that mean? <laughs> you steal God's heart, you do Bible verse. I don't know what that meant. But what it means is somebody who wants what God wants. Somebody who's in love with what God is in love with. And somebody who wants God for being God, who he is. 
it's weird to say that in our context, like I want my son to grow up and be a man after my own heart. It's kind of strange, but I would, say, I would love to say, hey, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm in a place that I love God, I want my son to have that same heart. I want him to have the same heart that I have, which is I want to love and serve God. I want to be passionate about what God's passionate about. That was the only thing that qualified David for kingship. The only thing. Saul had looks, height, wealth, skill on the battlefield. He's a great soldier. It didn't matter. All of his ability and capacity failed him. David has nothing. He comes from a shepherd's family. He's so lame. I'm I'm not speaking too out of the blue here. He's so lame that his own family doesn't even think he's worthy of being king when Samuel comes knocking at their door. Samuel comes up and goes, hey, Jesse, where's all your sons at? One of them's going to be king of Israel. And Jesse's like, sweet, we're just farmers. This is an awesome bump up for us. Okay, here's my six sons. And Samuel goes, where's, where's your other kid? And Jesse's probably like, oh, shoot, I have another kid. You know, like he just, David's so low on the totem pole, he's not even in his own father's eyes worthy of being elected. And yet that kid is the one who had the heart that was most similar to God's heart, and he was hungry for the things God wanted. David was defined by his psalms, his devotion to God, his daily song singing and and worship of God. He was defined by his courage and what he was doing. He was literally willing to give give his life to save sheep. Who Who does that remind you of? Jesus, right? David was literally a little shepherd who fought bears and lions. He admits it, I fought bears and lions, but I knew the Lord would protect me because this was my calling, and so I did it. David was this man who was just passionate, courageous, but so humble because he submitted to God's rule and God's words. I mean, what did Saul do before he showed up on the scene? We don't know, but we do know what David did. He was playing out there with sheep, playing music for them. He was loving God on his own with no one watching. So let's make this clear. Obedience, so Saul couldn't obey the will of God because obedience can't be acted out with a prideful heart. I mean, it works with people right? We can trick people. Oh, look, I'm doing what you want. And inside we're like, screw you, (laughs) right? That's that's what happens. But you can't do that with God. Saul thought he could trick Samuel, which was a tricking God. Think about that. He was like, oh, Samuel, look, look, uh, uh, the people brought all these sheep to sacrifice to God. And Samuel's like, dude, I speak for God. God tells me what's going on. You're lying. Why are you lying to God? So obedience has to be acted out with a humble heart. Somebody who's willing to go and say, Hey, God, no matter the circumstance, no matter the wisdom that is thrown at me, no matter the good reasons I have to do what I have to do, if you don't want it, I don't want it. And we're going to read that scene in 1 Samuel 24. So please turn with me to 1 Samuel 24 to read one of my favorite scenes of David in the Bible. 1 Samuel 24, verses 3 is where we're starting. So Saul has been hunting David for a long time at this point, Hunting David and trying to kill him. David has been on the run in the wilderness. He's running around with a bunch of men. They must have stank. They were hungry. They were tired. They were at the wit's end for years and years and years. David's own wife, which was Saul's daughter, was given away to another man. He had nothing left. That's the context for David here. So Saul came to the sheep pens along the way, and the cave was there. And Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. Out of the thousands of caves Saul could have gone in, he went to that one. The men said, This is the day the Lord spoke to you when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hand to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. 
Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men. It did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. Wow. This is an intense scene. David literally is told by his men, who are the ride-or-die kind of guys you want in any men's ministry. These guys are like, you want to go live in a bunch of caves? I'll do that with you. For how long? As long as we need to. Like, these guys are hardcore. They would die for David, and they give him the best advice they can give him. They give him God's own words. Hey, remember that time that God told you that you would have the opportunity to have your enemy in your hand? Now's that time. Chop his head off. That was the unspoken. Chop his head off. Cut the head off the snake. Did David do that? No. Why? Well, let's look at this from another perspective. If you look at this from history and the other nations surrounding Israel and the other ways of ruling, David is an idiot. He's a straight idiot here. This man Saul is ruining the kingdom of Israel. His infighting and civil war and lack of attention to the ruling of his people has led his nation to ruin. The Philistines are attacking from all angles. Cutting Saul's head off is the better mercy. Because then David can walk out of the cave and say, you know when Saul was anointed? Guess what? God came to me when I was 16 and he anointed me. I'm the rightful king. Let's do this thing together. Here's his head. Let's move on from this legacy. Let's go do what God wants us to do. He could have done that and been applauded. That would have been the right call. But he gets, he's so humble and so willing to hear what God has to say to him that cutting off the corner of Saul's robe broke his heart. That's insane. That's crazy. That's, that's superhuman. None of us would feel that way. Most of us would take that opportunity to end a bad guy's legacy. But David says, no, this is the Lord's job. The Lord appoints him and the Lord will remove him and I can't be in the way. We're going to see that as we keep reading. Then David came out of the cave in verse 8 and said to Saul, my Lord the king, when Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes that the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on, the, on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. See, there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil things, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing, a dead dog, a flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. One of the greatest speeches in human history. David cannot be more explicit. I serve the Lord first. Not even what I want. Not even logical, good decision making. God is the king and he's the judge and he will do what he wants. And in doing this, he offers Saul 
another chance to repent. His offering saw God's hand of mercy again. The one who Saul has hunted and taken everything from. He even calls him my king, my lord. He, Saul's lost that right a long time ago. Saul's not a king in God's eyes. Saul's ruling on his own right now. Saul's doing what he wants right now. To David, he is at pro, prostrate before God and before Saul saying, I, I'm not going to do what everyone is telling me to do. I'm not going to do what my heart wants to do because my heart wants what God wants. I fear God much more than I fear you, even though you're trying to kill me. You see, David is just pure next to Saul's evil. And I, don't, I want us to kind of go back to Saul really briefly and think, was Saul a bad person? Yes, actually. We're all bad people. When God's spirit came upon Saul at the beginning of his reign of, of being king over Israel, Saul was empowered to do good things. And he did some good things. But the more he pushed God away, the more he ripped God out of his life, the more wicked he became. And so when God says, I'm going to give your kingdom away, God removes his spirit from Saul. And the wickedness in his heart bubbles up. Saul's entire legacy after is just filled with evil. He tries to kill David. He kills a bunch of prophets. He almost kills his son. He gives his daughter away like cattle. He is a bad guy. He becomes a really bad villain because he rips God out of his life. And guess what? David has nothing else to cling to except God. He is hungry. He is thirsty. He's like Jesus in the wilderness, clinging to the robe of God, saying, please keep me alive. Give me hope because I don't have any hope. He's never going to raise his hand against another human being because he doesn't even think about other human beings at this point other than how can I show your love to them. David is amazing here. Life-changing. And his kingdom lasts forever. So where Saul loses everything by trying to gain everything, he tries to do the right thing that kings do, and in doing that, he loses his kingdom. David does what God wants, and his kingdom lasts forever. Because guess what? Jesus is planted in his royal line. Jesus is from David. And Jesus' kingdom lasts forever. So David, is, his small obediences, his faithful fear of the Lord is rewarded eternally. So we've talked about a lot of stuff today. We've talked about the fear of the Lord, the fear of man, and how this fear can take root either way to either rob you of God's promises or, or to make you align with them and to be in God's will. But the will of God is kind of mysterious for a lot of us. I mean, 2019 is ending and 2020 is ahead of us and a lot of us have big decisions to make. Some of us have brokenness in our homes and our workplace and going, what, where do we go from here? So how do we know the will of God? Well, the will of God is actually simple to find out. And it starts with one thing. Daily communion with him. Daily communion with God. Through his word, through song, through meditation, through prayer. Like without that, Everything else in the world, the voices around us rise up. They rise up and they say, do this, do that, do this, do that. Prove yourself. But when you meet with God every day, those voices become very small because you realize, I'm talking to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the King of Heaven and Earth who came down from me. Like, it's not just powerful God anymore. It's personal powerful God who walks with us. How would we not want to be with him? That's hard because I don't want to be with him sometimes. I'm a pastor up here. I'm paid to think about these things and I still struggle with meeting day to day, you know? It's, it takes so much self-discipline, so much focus, so much spirit. I don't have any of these things on my own. I have to pray for them. 
And Jesus is the most amazing example of this. He doesn't live day to day. Jesus lives minute to minute. His mantra was, I only do and say what the Father wants me to do and say. How do you know that, Jesus? How do you know what your God wants you to do all day long? Well, he's got to be in communication with him all day long. Every minute of every day, Jesus was in the Spirit, walking with the Spirit, waiting on the Spirit, and doing these obedient, humble things to love people around him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You've all heard that before. This isn't like, forget yourself, forget logic, throw out all the good advice. It's not like that at all. But if you don't have the fear of the Lord as the core of your life, all the good advice and all the leadership models in the world will not help you. They will kill you, like Saul. He looked around and was like, hey, they got to figure it out. And then his life tanked hard. His, his descendants were cursed for generations. And I need to tell you a story about my own life where I had a decision. Was I going to act like David or was I going to act like Saul? And it was very difficult for me. So I'm going to tell you a story. Uh, I told it in the first service and people were like, you didn't finish the story. So uh, this is part one of the story. Maybe it will come out more over the times to get up here. So part one of my story is um, my wife and I had prayed for this opportunity and asked God at least six very difficult doors to be opened for us to take a job. Six difficult doors, location, cost, living, all that stuff. God punted those doors open. He was like, welcome in. This is my will. It's very clear. We're like, oh, wow. In a month, you answered all those prayers? Okay, I guess this is the will of God. We walked into this job and it was like instant fruit was happening and excitement and vision. And we we're like, we're here. We're, we're in God's will. We're doing what he wants us to do. And in the middle of this excitement and in the kind of the momentum of the spirit working in the job that I was doing and partnering with Rufian, in, all of a sudden we had a friend come to me. And he was like, what if you, have you prayed and asked God, is this uh, God's will to stay here long term? Or is he going to take you somewhere else? Have you ever given that to God? Have you ever given him the option to take you out of this job? Are you holding it too close? And my wife and I were like, we've never even thought about that. Like, it wasn't even in our brain. We're like, we're clearly doing the will of God, so this is good. Why would we pray for it to change? But we're like, hey, we'll give it a chance. <laughs> I think we spent a week praying, like, about it. Like, God, if you want us to move, I mean, we're open for it. We kind of try to hold it, open hands, you know. But for real, like for all intents and purposes, we're still going to do what we wanted to do and we're doing, you know, the, the ministry that was set before us. And then God spoke two months later. The door was shut in my face. I entered a meeting that was supposed to go one way and I was fired in five minutes. Like, just shut. It wasn't even like a, hey, this is a disciplinary thing or anything like that. There was nothing. It was just, hey, we're not going to move forward with you. What? Like, <laughs> the will of God was clearly for us to be here. All the doors were kicked open, so bam. But in the shutting of that door, something happened in me. It was crazy. The Spirit said, you prayed for this. And I didn't give you the option to fight your way out. It just shut. There was like, boom, it's done. And all the emotions that were happening were real, were painful, were really I was sick, viscerally sick. But, but there was a piece that was like, whoa. We prayed, and then the will of God happened. Like, there was no arguing. There was no way around this. And so we had this decision, because um, our hearts were broken. How do you go forward and honor God in that? 
because everything in me wanted to be Saul. Everything in me wanted to spit venom and say, you're wrong. You're believing lies. That's not true. And, it, and I was, and this is the sad part, in all intents and purposes, I was right. But the Spirit kept whispering in my ear, hey, remember when Jesus was called in front of the judges and they all said lies to him? What did he do? He trusted God. And I'm like, I'm not Jesus. <laughs> can, can, I get my, can I get my bidding? Can I just say one thing? Can I just say one thing? And it was very clear in those meetings. I had called into meetings after that to kind of, how does this transition out? And it was like so clear that if I opened my mouth, I was giving in to the Saul in me, the fear of man. I need to prove that they're wrong. I need to defend my honor. And by me being quiet and listening, it gave me inroads to help transition. It kept a lot of the relationships that I wanted to burn bridges. Like I wanted to burn everything. And it kept me and my wife humble, like deeply humble, because we had zero, zero anything to cling to at that point. We were just holding on to Jesus like every day, going, praying all day, going like, how, how am I supposed to love the person in front of me? Give me the strength to do that. Give me the strength to do that. And he revealed to me that the will of God isn't something weeks out ahead of you. It isn't something that you're planning for God. It's the day-to-day -day obedience to love the people that are really hard to love, to love your enemies, to love the broken, and just be present with them and, and listen to the Spirit. Every time we listened, we would literally go to the end of our, our strength and go, I have nothing left. What do you want? He would speak every time. It was only by God's grace that I was allowed to be like David and not like Saul. I wanted to be Saul so bad. I still do sometimes. I still want to be Saul. I still want to shout, you know, my own name high and go like, you were all wrong. Ha, ha, ha. And that's me being wicked. And the Spirit has to forgive me for that and push it back down and say, no, that's not what I called you to. Because the will of God is worked out through communion with God and daily humble obedience to what's right in front of you. If you haven't already, ask yourself what is explicitly right in front of you today, and that's the will of God. That's what it is. A lot of us like to jump ship Oh, we're going to go do something big for God. We're going to go do some amazing work for God. I'm going to feed the homeless. I'm going to move to Africa. I'm going to be full-time nonprofit. My family are all going to be missionaries. Hold on a second. <laughs> Pull it back. If you are struggling to be humble and loving, that's the will of God for you. Because when you get to those big things without God as your primary source, you become a Saul and you function on your own strength. You become paranoid. You become wicked because you're afraid of losing it. But when everything is given to you from God, it's a free gift. Like, hey, it's God's. You can take it or leave it. I'm just here to do my best with it. I'm here to work with him, with his hands, following his lead. Jesus' entire life was minute-to-minute -minute obedience. And when, when everyone said, oh, that's enough, Jesus. You've walked into Jerusalem. Everyone's cheering your name. That's enough. You've, you've done enough work. He goes, no, 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 no. I'm about to do the real work. I'm going to go die for the wicked, evil people that spit in my face. What? No, 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 no. The will of God for you is to reign in Israel as, as Messiah King and conquer the world. He goes, no, 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 no. The will of God for me is to go up on that cross willingly, to crawl up on that cross and die for you. Oh. And then we see that we can't do that. <laughs> that David, David couldn't do that. When David became king and started sitting around being a king, that's when he made the worst decisions he ever made. He took a man's wife and killed him for it. 
when he was just sitting around, when he stopped depending on the day-to-day obedience to God. So don't let pride or fear rule 2020 for you. I pray that we can pray this for ourselves going forward. Psalm 39, 23 through 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Let's be obedient and humble people in 2020. People who do the daily obedience of God and maybe then the big dreams will come, but that's not the goal. Fear God, not man. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word and how it can so so easily con- convict us and then comfort us and bring us to a higher plane of, of appreciating you and what you've done through Jesus. I pray that the spirit that was within all believers here will comfort them and draw them closer to you, that the communion with you and the obedience to your will are literally the only things that will save us and move us forward in life and everything else will literally kill us. I pray that you help us this day to, to really believe this and, and live it out. In your son's name, amen.